City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, Design. This is an American Theatre Wing seminar of working in the theatre. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, New York City, the heart of the theatre. We're uptown and downtown and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and Broadway all meet to share the magic of the theatre. The American Theatre Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, which are named in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, who believed in preparing and knowing your role and everybody else's role in the theater. It was created not for the longest run for, but to reward those who have achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of theater and remains so today. Uh, we are an all year round program and the American Theater Wing doesn't stop just with the Tonys but our year-round program continues to service the community through the theater. We have a Saturday Theater for Children program, an introduction to Broadway program. We bring live theater to hospitals and nursing homes and seminars. And we have these seminars here that are created to give you an inside view of what it is to work in the theater. We've explored the performer, the playwright director, and choreographer, and the production, the nitty-gritty of what it is to create and produce a show. And now we have a seminar on theater design, perhaps one of the most important, to bring all these elements together, because without these people, there would be no theater. These are the people that create the magic. And when they do it very, very well, many times you don't even know that they've done it. And so before I go any further, I'm going to turn this over, this seminar on theater design, which will be co-chaired by Titch Dates, who is a theater critic, and Jules Fisher, who is a wonderful theater lighter. Titch, will you introduce your panel, please? Thank you, Mrs. Stevenson. I'm delighted to be co-moderating this panel with Jules Fisher. Jules is the distinguished lighting designer uh, who has done uh, the lighting for over a hundred Broadway shows. He's won six Tony Awards, and he's designed such shows as Grand Hotel, The Will Rogers Follies, and Jelly's Last Jam. Among the many shows that he has designed the lighting for away from Broadway, he probably had the largest audience in a single night for his portion of the lighting for President Clinton's inauguration. <laughs> Uh, he is also a Broadway producer and a magician. On my right is David Shoulder. David has just won the American Theatre Wing's Noteworthy Unusual Effects Award for his props 
for Movie Land at the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. He's worked on props for several other shows there. Um, most notably right now, uh, their current offering, A Midsummer Night's Dream. David is also an actor, and he has appeared, among other places, with the Urban Gorilla Street Theater and with the Scum Wrenches. <laughs> <laughs> to David's right is uh, the veteran scene designer, Tony Walton, who has, for over 30 years, uh, produced dazzling designs for the theater and film and television. He won an Oscar, you may remember, for all that jazz, an Emmy for his scenic design of Death of a Salesman. Um, he, his most recent uh, American Theatre Wing Design Award is for She Loves Me, which he actually produced in London in 1964. <laughs> He's won three Tony Awards for scene design, and his long string of Broadway credits includes such shows as Chicago, Pippin, Guys and Dolls, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and uh, such John Guare plays as The House of Blue Leaves, Four Baboons Adoring the Sun, and Six Degrees of Separation. Tony Walton was inducted into the Theatre Hall of Fame in 1991. To Jules Fisher's left, we have another lighting designer, Beverly Emmons, who has won four Tony Awards, one Obie Award, two Bessie Awards, and, and so on. Uh, she has memorably lit uh, the uh, work of in, in opera and dance as well, and uh, has lit such legends in the dance world as Merce Cunningham and Martha Graham. Beverly Emmons actually was originally a dancer some, some years back. She's also lit a lot of work in experimental theater. She's done lighting for Richard Foreman, Meredith Monk, uh, Robert Wilson, uh, and for such uh, luminaries in music as Bette Midler and David Byrne. You may remember her lighting for Stop Making Sense by David Byrne. Uh, this season on Broadway, she lit Abe Lincoln in Illinois and Passion, Stephen Sondheim's Passion, for which she has just won an American Theatre Wing Lighting Design Award. Anne Huld Ward, in addition to designing at many notable regional theaters and off-Broadway, has designed an enviable string of such fine Broadway designs as Falsettos, St. Joan in the Summer House, Timon of Athens, Into the Woods, Sunday in the Park with George, and most recently, Beauty and the Beast, for which she won both the Tony Award and the American Theatre Wing Design Awards. And to her left, we have one of her creations. Thank you. <laughs> this, is, this is Lumiere. This is Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast, otherwise known as Gary Beach, one of the leading actors in Beauty and the Beast. Bonjour. <laughs> I, I think that we cannot ignore Gary's presence. I hope not. And we really must begin by asking Annie about her design of the costumes for Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know how many costumes you designed, but then if you could perhaps talk specifically about all the objects, you know, things like the wardrobe and the salt and pepper shakers and the cheese grater and that sort of thing, and of course especially Lumiere, since we have him right here with us. Well, I think there are about uh, 400 sketches. Um, 
to, in the development process of, of what the objects really turned out to be. And of Gary alone, I think there are about 50 fully finished sketches of, uh, you know, what would a candelabra look like if its candle was bigger, if its candle was smaller, if it had four candles, if it had three candles. Um, it was very much a development process that went on like that. Um, really fully finished drawings uh, and, uh, and being able to uh, almost display them in a graphic arts sensibility to people so that a, uh, in this instance a large number of people could speak about what their reactions and responses were to the designs. Um, and uh, I think that one of the things that I felt was very important uh, in the design process and that I knew only I, I could be really responsible for was always trying to keep in mind the actor inside of the costume. In other words, asking Gary to wear the Campbell outfit, asking uh, Beth Fowler to be inside of a teapot. Uh, all of those things are, uh, it's a, a marvelous experience visually to look at for an instance, but uh, I must be able to perceive how the actor is going to go through the entire evening in it. While everybody else is arguing about whether he has three candles or four candles, I really had to uh, make sure that Gary could try to do his job properly. And uh, so that, to me, became the essence of the preservation, really the preservation of the actor in the heart of Beauty and the Beast so that they, they can perform for you on stage. When did you start this? Did you start in California or? Um, I, I think Gary and I were just speaking about that. I believe it was about two years before, uh, before the Broadway production opened. And basically how I got involved was because uh, uh, Michael Eisner was very concerned about how they would manage to uh, develop the project with human-sized people, an actor inside of the candlestick or the teapot instead of the little <laughs> objects that they were in the film. And uh, so they asked if I would begin to look at, at, the, at what we call the enchanted objects, those major objects of the show. And I, uh, I did uh, the, the first baby steps towards what I thought that design work could be and then flew out to Aspen, Colorado to meet uh, with the, with the, the uh, executives from Disney and really sh start to talk about what this would be in the theater. And always, I mean, um, that was my cherished responsibility in this was the preservation of that they of could the perform theater. and they could yes. move with it. Yeah. yeah, it's quite a responsibility. Did it throw you when you first saw? Well, I, you know, I think you, we all, I think, look at a project and try to decide what the challenges of it are. You know, and and uh, if if you if you're going through a design process with people who really haven't been through it, at least in the Broadway venue before, you kind of have to say, all right, these are my responsibilities for this project, and this is what I, I will manage to do. And we tried to do it. I mean, I'm sure Gary would tell you there are things that we wish were more comfortable or more flexible or this or that. But uh, And we continued to work on that. He was just talking about he's just had a new pair of <coughs> arms done. Uh, and we continued to try to refine that. Constantly right. refining. And uh, the one thing about Anne, when uh, I was first thrown into a fitting, uh, she kept talking about your comfort, your comfort. And, of course, I was interested in that, too. But then we began to realize she was designing not just a costume of a candlestick, 
In our show, I'm turning into a candlestick. I'm really a man. So the human has to show through. And this was the problem that, uh, that Anne met head on, that I think the people at Disney hadn't quite thought of that, that uh, they're used to seeing the little candle in the movie and the clock. And uh, our designer knew that, no, it has to be a lot more than that for the human element to come through for the second act to work. And uh, I think Michael Eisner told uh, Anne at one point, the success or failure of this entire production rests on your shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> you met the challenge. That's really the difference between uh, movies or television and theater, that you have to see and you do see the human being there, no mm -hmm. matter what the disguise is, no matter what the costume is. And to be able to take that and in this kind of, of costume is fabulous. Well, and I think that's the dedication of our lives. I think that's the dedication of the lives of designers in the theater, is really our responsibility to that actor and how we help them to... Very good. Did Disney express their appreciation of what you had done? They have expressed their appreciation. <laughs> yes, Shelley, yes. Yes. Mm. Gary, how, how does it feel to wear that costume? What, what's what going on in there? What's going on there? <laughs> you, you just tried to scratch your, your uh, chin. I, I, was, mean, I was very nicely given two little exits here, so I can do this. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, if you've seen the show, midway in the first act, I turn into a song and dance man. And uh, we're, uh, I end up running up and down stacked dishes. I have a hat and a cane doing kicks. Uh, as uh, be our guest number. And all of this was on Anne's shoulders. And uh, we would discuss this during the rehearsal process, and she'd say, can you do it? Can you do it? And I said, you know, I don't think, I don't think that we should make this too comfortable. This is not a comfortable position to be in, turning into a metal candelabra. Let's see what we can do. And so it was total collaboration in that part. And... Uh, I did tell her, I said, I didn't expect to go into this wearing opera pumps and a smoking jacket, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's been a gas, I must say, that to, to be backstage at the Palace Theatre right now. It's a wonderful piece of magic. Is, is uh, to see the, the clock and the, the rest of the cast wanted to be here today and, and the, uh, the director and the choreographer, but uh, they're having a big casting call for the national tour of <coughs> William Sonoma. Just kidding. I should say that it's. Anne, would you agree that it's astonishing to have a performer like Gary as receptive and supportive of this? I, I did the Tin Man costume for the movie of The Wiz, and our actor in that case said, I, I can't move unless I wear these particular brand of suede loafers, and I can only wear. Uh, approximately 23 pounds of anything on me before I just grind to a halt. This is the Tin Man. <laughs> so to have a Gary is something well, special. I think, I mean, the whole cast has been so dedicated to the design. And, mm. I, and I do, I mean, I think that there are many actors who, who would like to express that dedication, but someplace along the process, in the tiredness, uh, it, it begins to disappear. It mm -hmm. clearly did not disappear from these people. They really, through the tech time in Houston, they were my support mm -hmm. rather than the other right. way around. Yeah. It, it, was, it has been a marvelous experience, and they are That's a amazing. tremendous cast, I think. You can tell. Clearly, you have a special 
responsibility, your self, Gary, you, your hands light up frequently during the show. Mm -hmm. How do you manage not to set people or costumes or whatever on fire? That's what we did in Houston. Uh, Every night a different person. We had a huge cast before we got to New York. Uh, Gary, have you demonstrated the rest of your magic? No, I wanted to stand up, maybe. Oh, and, uh, Anne, you want to stand up with me? I think you both want to stand up. Don't move too fast. I won't. Not the interesting like thing about the interesting thing about this costume, and uh, this is where all of the departments come together for Anne. She, uh, we would uh, be down at Barbara Matera's, and a problem would come up about pyro, and uh, so all of a sudden, no one in the room knew about pyro. So someone had to come in from another part of town to tell us how to handle that. And of course, the prosthetic, the candle head, which is, uh, if you can see is my hair growing into a candle. And so uh, the Bob Kelly wig and David Lawrence became part of that, and the prosthetic on the, uh, on the arms. And uh, pyro, I carry butane on my back. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, handled by my friend Norman over here, who hooks me up and unhooks me every evening, and then Franklin takes care of... Uh, I, we were discussing this upstairs. Uh, there's no such thing as put on your coat and tie and get out there. It's uh, me and four other people yeah. <laughs> standing there uh, getting ready for the show. But how it all comes long, together in one you? costume. How long does it take you to be hooked up and get into all of oh, this? Oh, we're very quick now. Uh, we can do it, I'd say, in, what, ten minutes? Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shall we try it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very Thank you. much. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed this, and I think maybe I should go upstairs. I'm uh, opening a Zippo factory on the other side. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed this meeting, all of you. Thank you, Anne. You Congratulations <laughs> to you all. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry Beach. Would you like to continue? Tick. Okay. Jules. <laughs> uh, I, I want to ask uh, uh, Beverly first, because I, because of our relationship in lighting, uh, were there specific things that you had to deal with on passion because the work that Adrian Lobel did, which seemed so closely related to modernist paintings, with, with that, those paintings, did they require special lighting? Did that involve special lighting as far as integrating it with the stage show? I think so. Uh, Adrian's did take inspiration from painting, but not in the sense that some designers take an idea of a painting and make it three-dimensional. Her use of paintings were the painting, and in fact the drops that are the backdrops of the piece are Turner watercolors of, of uh, Italy. Uh, and then in front of them, and they're largely blues and golds in tone, and then in front of them in it, with panels, uh, portals that then close up as wa as rolling walls in different scenes. They, the color changes toward from the pink, a pink blue, and then a, uh, it moves toward the reds and toward the deep uh, red browns. And uh, one of the things about a red set is that there you cannot use red colors to look warm because nothing is as warm as that red wall behind everybody. And so warm had to become the gold um, and the gold of the sun and then you could see it's about 19th century Italy that that all worked as an idea but the problem for 
for uh, me as a designer is that in a three-dimensional set, you can bury the angles of light and the cuts and the shutter cuts and the shadows, and can, can the audience can believe that it is real by the way you land the light on it. But a flat surface is a flat surface, and these were flat surfaces with no architectural features, but just painted uh, painted rich, deep textures. So any light that hit it was a flat on land with shadows, so that, so that uh, that had to be very carefully arranged in every scene, that we weren't slamming into those walls, and yet could still see performers' faces. The roundness of the performer and the believability of the scene that they're in had to work even though the wall was red and was really quite a, a, a painterly statement, almost as though they were doing that scene against a Rothko or, or, some, or some other uh, modern, a much more modern sensibility. Did the director in any way say to try to make the lighting of the actors more like a modernist painting? Or was there no, no. He, he, it, that was, they were to be in their own real world. And uh, uh, I think the painting idea intrigued him because of its non-literalness and that he and Adrian uh, really enjoyed the, making the scenery and the play very fluid to go, to go from all of the different places it had to go uh, simply by changing lights and rolling these walls into different spatial arrangements. I think, I think that, that released them from having to worry about the detail of where are we. It was left to me in some cases to say, where are we, what time of day is it, is it hot, is it cold, and how are these people feeling about each other? What is the atmosphere at this time? Uh, and basically, it's, it, there aren't any um, unusual techniques or modern devices compared to some shows now. It's really old-fashioned Lico's and Fresnel's. You, uh, you had the opportunity on that show, which a lot of us don't get, was to actually not only do a workshop of the production, which many of us have experienced, but you had a chance to light the workshop. How, did anything, or what did you learn in lighting the workshop that you were then able to transfer to lighting the Broadway production? Well, one of the things that was wonderful about lighting the workshop is that I light it the way, I could light it the way you do a dance concert, and by that I mean I could go to rehearsal and I could see it. I could see it. What do you mean by lighting workshop? We did a workshop at the Clark Studio Theater at Lincoln Center, um, where, which is a black box theater that is uh, part of their education department up there, Lincoln Center Institute. And it is a, a small facility, a black box, a room with seating and a very flexible lighting system. So for very little expense, they could present the, the rehearsal for invited people so they could see how the show moved and how it, how it developed and played, and we could light it. I actually lit it with 30 lights. Uh, and um, and they wore. How often is that used? It's both black and white for shows. Uh, usually, it's gotten so that one commercial production a year comes in and uses it to to do a, a trial. Uh, and 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 uses the lighting as well. Yes. Now, right. so they, they, various directors choose to use the lighting in different ways. Mm -hmm. James said, oh, you're here. Oh, oh, fine. We'll need some lighting. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you be the designer? Oh, why don't you do it? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, whereas whereas uh, Graciela Danielle did one this summer where we basically left the fluorescence on and enhanced with Lico's and it, so that they looked good, but there was no attempt <coughs> at emotion or cueing. This. Mm -hmm. but, but passion is, was such a such a 
deep, dark piece and was required so much fluidity that I think it helped, I like to think it helped sell the piece mm-hmm. that people could see some semblance of what it was going to move like and have it mm-hmm. instead of be too raw. But the opening scene of those two figures in the bed, I, I saw in the rehearsal room and I could, I knew that the, if, in, an, in a scene like that, the light has to look like it's coming from, from between them, from them. It has to be there and nowhere else. Mm-hmm. And at the Clark, it was easy because you could put a leak over there and it could land over there in the wings and be gone and only light those two faces mm-hmm. looking at each other. And I think it was that angle. Then what was frightening was once we got it into the theater, by the time Adrian had brought in the walls to make the intimacy of that scene, you couldn't make the shot mm. without it would gonna you have to miss this wall and you have to miss the back of the bed and you have to miss the wall back here and mm. in order to make that light beam not be there. And so um, we did something which they rarely let you do on Broadway, which is you, we took a rolling stand and we put a leco right out of sight lines, basically on stage to get that shot to, and and thank heavens we have a wonderful electrician who gets that focus every night mm-hmm. has to be cut off of this and off of that and this and this exactly right and at the blackout there's a man there to take it away and and most uh, you know most producers you know they don't want any electricians on the deck you have to pay them but luckily there's a guy there anyways he's doing sound it was fine but that's the, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing you have to do Excuse how, how did you learn to articulate everything that you needed in this to do it. Did, is there a school for, the, for lighting now? Is there a university? I is didn't go to any of them. School of Jules Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I worked yes. as an assistant for Jules Fisher for <laughs> quite some time. When, did and, you, when and, uh, you had to go someplace before he came to Jules Fisher? Uh, Sarah I, Lawrence. Yeah, I was at Sarah Lawrence as a dancer and worked, and worked backstage at, at the Connecticut Dance Festival, American Dance Festival at Connecticut College. Mm-hmm where the Graham Company and all of the major modern dancers came in. And Tom Skelton uh, was the lighting designer, and he's the one who interested me in lighting. He's a spectacular man whom we will miss. Are there any departments of lighting now? Like a, a yes, uh, uh, NYU School of the Arts, uh, the Tisch School of the Arts, and uh, Yale and Carnegie Tech. Boston University has a pretty good program. A lot of universities purport to teach lighting. <laughs> okay. Northwestern. Beverly. Yes, Northwestern. Beverly, in that first let's, scene. Let's come the, over here. The, uh, well, I could, uh, no, no, no. certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, Tony, uh, the Roundabout Theater Company had never done a musical before mm-hmm. you did She Loves Me, and they have a, a, a rather intimate playing space. Yes. Um, by my count, if I've got it right, there are actually seven different distinct acting areas in that play, plus you had to make room for an orchestra. How did right. you solve, th- those are amazing problems to solve in that little theater. How did you do it? It was an act of desperation, I think. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was uh, as you say, w- you start with the predicaments and try to solve them. The first one being, this is the first time we have to deal with an orchestra in this space. The, the, the thing that's curious about the Roundabout Theater, for those who don't know, is it's actually built into the corner of what was the old, the famous old Bond store there on Broadway and 46th Street, 45th Street. And um, uh, many of us designers were actually invited in to comment on the design as they were converting it into a theater. Were you invited in, Jules? Well, and they were talking about the possibility of building the stage into the corner of this rectangular room. 
And we, all of us, I believe, said, oh, please don't put it in the corner. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course they did, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a thrust that comes out of the corner, but it means you have no wing space, so you can't put the orchestra off in the wings or any of the scenery off in the wings. You have no uh, flying space, so you can't fly anything in or out. All you've got is this little corner to try to make everything happen. And uh, the fact that it was called the roundabout was... Um, helpful in that it made me think, well, maybe we should design a little carousel that, in effect, delivered everything by being able to turn and open up. And the only place left to put the orchestra was above them, floating above them. And um, so that sort of dictated the needs of the production. And the, the strange thing that results from a decision like that is that we are now playing in the Savoy Theatre in London. We got transferred to a, a conventional Broadway musical house, yes, I've seen it there and, which is nothing like the roundabout. You know, yeah. you have to try and adapt those shapes and spatial relationships to these completely different environments. It's playing very successfully in London, so we were sort of lucky it worked out. Are you pleased with, mm. with, with working that way? Do you like um, the challenge of... I did enjoy yeah. it. I was panicked to begin uh -huh. with. But I, we had a remarkable director, Scott Ellis, and a remarkable yes. choreographer, um, uh, Rob Marshall. And they were very, very inventive about what we were doing. For example, we have um, the exterior of the shop is wraparound walls that mm -hmm. come from behind this carousel, as it were. And, but they don't leave a lot of space in the forestage because it's not a very big um, audience seating arrangement. And needless to say, the management of producers were not keen to give up a seat or two. So we had the space we had was the space they would normally have for a single set straight play. And so the space on the outer rim of this exterior of the perfume shop was small. There were some key scenes that took place there in the original musical. For one thing, the, the final big number, the 12 Days of Christmas number. And um, uh, our director and choreographer brilliantly came up with a way of doing this within the shop, which actually not only solved my physical problems, but made the number itself much funnier than it had ever been when it took place on the exterior of the is shop. That, is that normal that you work with a director, choreographer, in as your set? As closely sets? as possible, yes. That, mm -hmm. that everything springs from them or is filtered through them. And in a case like that, when you are lucky to have people who are so visually what, responsive, yeah. it makes a tremendous difference. Where do you build your sets? Here in New York, or at the theater, or...? No, um, well, in that case, it was at a, a shop just the other side of the, um, uh, of the tunnel into uh, Red Hook. <laughs> but some places are a little more glamorous than that. Some of them were built in the Bronx, <laughs> and some of them up in, <laughs> in Newburgh. And uh, today I was just visiting uh, a scenic shop in Cornwall on the Hudson, which is a glorious place to visit at this time of year. You go through all the, the trees in the fall. Are there set designing schools? I'm going to ask you. Yes, the same essentially the right. same schools mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Jules and Beverly mentioned. Um, but I actually studied in London, mm -hmm. so I didn't have the advantage of learning the kind of uh, nuts and bolts expertise that the schools here do. Did you study uh, in the schools or in the theatre in London? In, in a, a place called the Slade School of Fine Art. It actually was, uh, the teachers were essentially painters who occasionally did a, a W.H. Auden play or a Isherwood or something that was um, 
essentially an artwork. And their, their attitude was it's about the art, it's not about learning how to do a ground plan. Or, so they didn't teach how to do a ground plan. That was a, <laughs> quite a tricky was, way to start out. They taught out. you it's very well. <laughs> well I was lucky enough to be uh, an assistant designer concurrently at Wimbledon Repertory Theatre, which is sort of like year-round summer stock. Mm -hmm. And that was mostly a case of banging the same old bits of scenery into new shapes and slopping some different color on them. So the two disciplines were so diametrically opposed that I think I had a useful, useful <laughs> collision yeah. there. Tony, you told me a, a tale the other one before, but maybe you could do it again, about your experience with that, uh, one of your first experiences with the actress who you had to audition by bringing the costumes to the, her home. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, this is a famous, um, this is a long time ago, Jules. Uh, <laughs> this is a famous, but it bears on what they were saying. The, um, this was a famous actress who, for the purposes of this, shall be nameless. Um, <laughs> but she was ultimately damned, so she was a very worthwhile person. But uh, she had contractually approval of the designs of the show. So when I called the director to say, I have the set model and the costume sketches finished, he said, well, um, our star has the right to see them before you show them to me. So I went to her house, and she came, and I put my little set model on the grand piano, and, uh, and I laid out the costume sketches on top of the grand piano, and she came sweeping down the staircase, <laughs> mysteriously without a big bouquet of flowers, but might just as well have <laughs> And she swept past the model and the costume sketches and said, have you met Betty? I said, I don't, unless that was the lady who mentioned, no, no, Betty, boy, she's been with me for X years, and she, I don't do anything without her, and I would love her to see your work. She went, Betty! <laughs> <laughs> And she swept back up the stairs without looking at anything. <laughs> and Betty came on. <laughs> and Betty was this little tiny uh, sort of dresser, uh, associate, everything. And she came and sort of half looked at the costume sketches and didn't look at the model and said, oh, this is going to be lovely, darling. And I've worked with our star all these years. And uh, she has a real problem with her tummy. It goes up and down like a yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes between the matinee and evening performance, if she goes out for a nice meal, it goes up so much I have to put a bow on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you let, just leave me your stuff and I'll take care of it and we'll let you know when you, we're ready to let you have a look at it. <coughs> so I phoned up <laughs> endlessly saying, is there a fitting I can come to? And finally it was dress rehearsal and I still hadn't seen any, anything. You know. And this was a play that was ultimately made into a musical by Canner and Ebb called 70 Girls 70 about a lot of elderly ladies who got involved in a robbery and so I had them all in autumnal colors and dress rehearsal of course finally amidst all these autumnal colors our star appeared and she was <laughs> she was wearing turquoise sequins <laughs> <laughs> and as she made her appearance uh, the director who was in those days this is in the paleolithic era he, he was the, <laughs> the directors used to do the lighting design and he called for every piece of lighting equipment that was illuminated to be raised by I don't know, five points or something and so the whole stage lit up like that and I said what's happening what are you doing <laughs> and he said she has it in her contract every time she sets foot on stage we have to raise a, so that the press can say as indeed they did every time she sets foot on stage the whole stage seems to light up <laughs> David Soldier um, has 
won the American Theater Wing Noteworthy Unusual Effects Award for doing the props for a show called Movie Land, which was essentially a one-person show written by, directed by, and starring Everett Quinton at the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Uh, Everett's character um, says she will sing and dance and tell stories if the dragon who is, has essentially enveloped her apartment will just let her live. Mm -hmm. And so she acts out every movie she can think of, The Spiral Staircase, The Ten Commandments, Dracula, The Invisible Man, Madame X. And David had the momentous responsibility for designing all of the objects that this uh, woman who's telling all these stories uses to dramatize all of these films and to play all of the characters from them. Now, I think David has brought us uh, a few samples of these props, yes, I which I hope he will show us. And perhaps um, you could manage to help us all learn exactly who's responsible for what. What is a prop? When, when um, Everett had to uh, act out the characters from Madame X by holding costumes, mm -hmm. grabbing clothing from her closet and holding the, these things in, in, in front of herself. Were those props or were those costumes? Actually, those were costumes. Those were costumes. Um, prop basically is anything that an actor will handle or he'll have in his hands or use in any way. But um, props and costumes oftentimes can merge mm -hmm. and sometimes a prop will be half a costume and half a prop as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the character, for example, grabs uh, a Clorox bottle with part of the bottle cut off and uses it as the pharaoh's headdress. Now, was that the customer's responsibility or your responsibility? That was the costume. That was a, okay. a brilliant piece of work by Tony Thompson. Um, also, I have to. We have to give credit where it's to Eureka directed. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Of course, of course, sure. Eureka directed it. <laughs> um, uh, would you like to show us? Sure, uh, what you I will. Um, Is it going to burst into flames? No, no flames <laughs> no, this we time. No fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the fun of working at the Ridiculous is that no joke or pun is too low. <laughs> so in, in the Ten Commandments part of mm. Movie Land, where Moses goes up into the mountains, he gets the um, Ten Commandments, he comes back down, lo and behold, the people are worshipping a golden calf. <laughs> um, the Ridiculous is a fun place because um, there's high camp and low camp all the time and anything is potentially fabulous and these are two rats that live with <laughs> Ruby in her kitchen which have been made absolutely fabulous. Um, <laughs> thank you Daphne Gruz for working on these as well. Speaking of bad jokes, uh, in the Ten Commandments where the curses are being put on Egypt by uh, Moses. The river is going to run with blood for seven days. There'll be a plague of frogs. There'll be snakes on Egypt. And Rudolph Giuliani's toupee. <laughs> <laughs> that works good, the show. Um, another thing, um, a, the biggest challenge in that show 
was the Invisible Man portion, because it was decided, um, it made sense, that it would be done in darkness with fluorescent lighting, um, black lights. So all of the props uh, had to be painted with fluorescent paint, and um, Everett, to his everlasting credit, managed to operate a whole table, a special table filled with props, completely enveloped in black, with black gauze over his eyes. And uh, watching him do that on the um, dress rehearsal night was really about the scariest mm. ten minutes of my life in theater, because we had gotten stuff to him that night, and somehow he managed to do it. Um, and he had to do everything. He had to play several characters with, uh, by himself. And um, one of the characters in The Invisible Man, of course, <coughs> is The Invisible Man. And here's how he looked. And the effect for this was, it's under black lights, was he has to disappear so the glasses come off. And they float in midair. You can't see that because he's completely in black. And then slowly, he unwraps himself. And then, this disappears, because it's completely black, and he's in black. <laughs> Wonderful. And it's essentially a puppet show that, that David created for Everett. Yeah. The, the other puppets for that part, I'm making a mess back here, I'm sorry, were these characters. Um, there's an officer who comes in to try and hunt down the Invisible Man. And uh, at another point, <laughs> there's the maid who comes in. The funny story about these was, um, this is under black light, so everything is fluorescent paint, but we didn't want to have a bright blue or bright pink officer. So um, I just started mixing fluorescent paints. and. It was a miracle, as far as I'm concerned, but by chance, I um, came up with this mix. And under black lights, it's the only color I've ever seen that isn't fluorescent but still shines. It comes up as a human face, uh, although it looks terrible under real lights. So. Now I have to ask you, where did you learn to do those things? What was your background? Um, my background was really working, doing some street theater uh, a couple of years ago during the Gulf War and afterwards some friends of mine had wound up in jail for uh, protesting the war and um, I and some friends to support them came down to the courthouse and started putting on shows during their trial and then that led into shows we did in the parks and um, I've done uh, performance work with my girlfriend in the scum wrenches. But basically, as far as working in theater and props, it started at the ridiculous two years ago, I think it was, with Brother Truckers, which is a wonderful piece, which went to um, Edinburgh last summer. And I was the assistant to two of my prop gods, uh, Jamie Leo and Deb Scott, who uh, really introduced me to prop making. And, taught me what I know right now. And, uh, but you've had no formal training at all? No, no formal training, but the, the process for me, and I'm sure every designer, is every show you learn something new. You learn about some new material, you learn a new place to shop, and um, that's, how, that's how you learn. What would happen to unions? 
if um, if he was going to work in a union play, if he's going to work in a, in a play on Broadway, do you have to go through any kind of of apprenticeship? I, I would imagine that if you wanted to work on a production that was a fully unionized production, you would either have to work with another person who was already a member of the union, uh, you know, ally yourself with a union prop shop, yeah. or if you could prove that what you did no one else could do, mm-hmm. they would allow you to do it. I see. I think that would you agree yes. that? Mm-hmm. I would. I also want to ask, what, because it's interesting to see that art and creativity are not necessarily related to dollars, what kind of budgets you had to do um, those productions? On The Ridiculous, we actually had a $1,000 prop budget. <laughs> That's because the, the the show was so heavily dependent on props. I mean, That's a large budget. Big budget show. Several yeah. props uh, in, in, in Everett's hand every minute of the show. Yeah. Different uh, props. How many props would you say you had to produce for that price? <clears throat> um, I don't know. Um, 30, 40, ranging from small throwaway props to bigger item props to the biggest prop, which was the dragon, which... Um, quickly became that damn dragon because he he didn't want to get made and uh, I it was a dragon this big that someone stands inside and operates the jaw and I worked and worked and worked on it and it actually got three seconds of stage time which <laughs> happens a lot the, the huge dragon's claw that comes in to try to grab Everett that was a prop also yes that was a prop ah. and there's a tail of the dragon that pops out of the refrigerator and wraps Everett up and tries to pull him in. Um, and Everett is really wonderful working with props. And when you make props, you, they're like your babies for costumes. I'm sure it's the same. And um, you just have to let the actors work with them. And Everett does some amazing things, things you didn't know that could be done with a prop. You know? Well, David didn't always go after the uh, flashy effect sometimes he helped to create a laugh in the simplest possible way, uh, the, the, the less is more way. Uh, when the Red Sea parted, <laughs> David's prop for that was, I guess, a sheet of paper with a C, the letter C, <laughs> in red, which uh, Ruby tears asunder <laughs> to part the Red Sea. And for um, Gave a Fabulous Ball, David's prop was a beach ball. <laughs> With glitter. So, yeah. so a, a lot of the humor was visual and came from the prop design. Yeah. That's, that's part of the fun of the ridiculous. You're always searching out. Sometimes the worst puns you can possibly How large yeah. the theater is it? Excuse me? How large is the theater? It's 145 seats, I think. Beverly Emmons, um, at one time you talked about your own philosophy as being something like, I don't think you used those words in the interview that I read, but a, a, a less is more philosophy, and you compared yourself to, to Jules and his uh, great fascination with the technology and the equipment. Just out of curiosity, um, this may not r- reveal anything about that, but how, how many instruments did you use, not in the workshop with the 30 instruments, but on Broadway and Passion, and how many did Jules use in Angels in America? Well, before, before I answer that, we had a very different physical problem as well as a very different 
I mean, you had eight hours of show, of episodic show to mm -hmm. do. So this is sort of a no-fair comparison. <laughs> um, um, whereas, whereas what we were doing on Passion was absolutely classical, wings and borders. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I did, I, in my count, I didn't count. Yeah, yeah I guess we did. We had, we had equipment that was that was actually lighting each one of those legs and borders in a very old-fashioned kind of way because the different colors uh, got thrown even though it was red there were deep colors in it and it could be thrown to the cooler or the warmer or the golder or the redder so counting that uh, what I would call border light equipment except that isn't what I used um, we used 400 focusing units um, which for a musical is small um, is, is Jules able to? Do you know how many lights we're using for Christmas Carol? This just to make a comparison. Tony and I are working on a musical of a Christmas Carol, the Dickens mm -hmm. book, and uh, however, it also is not fair to compare in some ways <laughs> <laughs> because it's at the Paramount yeah. Theater. It's but it might huge. be an entertaining True. Really <laughs> well, the, oddly enough, the number is not so huge. The surprise is that the number is, is not such a large number because I, I, I don't actually know the exact amount, but my guess is it's in uh, it's under 500. Oh, really? But the it's reason is there's 100 Verilites. Right. There's 100 lamps that are automated, computer-controlled, moving instruments. So each one of those can be changed at whim all night long. Mm -hmm. So they represent hundreds and hundreds of rides. Right. 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 How many seats is the... Uh, uh, 5,500. And that, by the way, I just, this is technical, but I'll take a moment. The amount of lights is often related to the amount of seats. Mm -hmm. If you have a theater in which people are only five rows away from the actors, you don't need very much brightness to see them. If you are 70 rows away, you, to see the exact same moment, you need much brighter lights and more of them. Okay. So right. it definitely the relates to the The peculiarity of this configuration is that, uh, although it's about the same number of seats as Radio City Music Hall, in Radio City they're stacked up. And in the Paramount they just go and go on one level. There's no balcony. There's no only balcony, yeah. All 5,500 seats are in one orchestra it's floor. It's a dish. Isn't yeah. it curious that with footlights, years ago when they had that footlights in the theater, which was a wonderful form of lighting for me, mm -hmm. you didn't have to alter the footlights in other words, you went back, back, back. If you had a theater with 5,000 seats, I think you you'd need brighter footlights mm -hmm. for the people in the back to get the same effect that the people up close are seeing. In fact, it's a technical problem because then it might be too bright for the audience sitting very close to the stage. Mm -hmm. Probing a little further at, at how your philosophies are similar and how, how they're different. Um, you worked on hair together. You were Jules's assistant in the 60s on hair, yes? I was around. Some? You yeah. were around. <laughs> I wasn't the formal assistant at <laughs> okay. that point. I think it was Mark. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if you had hair to do over, if you could turn back the clock, and this were the original production of hair, but you had all of today's technology to use and all that you know about lighting now, would either one of you see doing anything differently? Let's start with Beverly. My opinion is that it was perfect and I wouldn't change uh, it. Of course. <laughs> 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 That's <laughs> well, uh, I, I was very happy with the way it looked, but I think times have changed. And uh, uh, we have a new expectation of what lighting should do. I think it's changed drastically in the last 15 years. And it's changing even more rapidly today. 
Uh, we expect more movement. Uh, I've looked at, uh, one is, let's take brightness. Uh, a show like Hair had probably 200 lights as a musical in 1968. And today that same, most musicals on Broadway would have five, six, seven hundred lamps. That's three times the amount of equipment. But the other is the actual number of cues. I recently looked at some uh, light plots for some standard musicals. And when I say standard, that's not a fair, fair expression, but uh, more traditional musicals, including something like West Side Story. And in, if, in the West Side Story prompt book that I had an opportunity to look at, it, will, it says the song starts, and there's a light cue for the lights to change at the beginning of the song, and the next light cue is at the end of the song. Mm. And today, on a Broadway musical, there might be 30 light cues in a song. Is that necessary, do you think? I think so. I, not, I, when I say necessary, it depends on the content of the material. It depends on the song, it depends on the play, it depends on the musical. Mm. Do you need all this? But, uh, could, could I give an instance of that that yes. involves you, which was um, on My One and Only, there was a number that ultimately became uh, an enormously successful number and was featured on the Tony Awards show, Kicking the Clouds Away, was it? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a number that uh, Out of Town sort of laid there. And although it was worked on somewhat choreographically, it was essentially the same number. And Jules came in and changed it from a number with perhaps two or three cues to continually changing cues, which gave the illusion of the number getting more and more and more exciting. I see. Until people literally were crazy by the end of it. Tommy <laughs> Toon had something to do with it. He did have that. something to do with it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't certainly stop you in no. That's very interesting, because <laughs> that happened very often, that the, <clears throat> the lighting works in, in, in tandem with the, the number, the dance Oh, number. it's essential. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, w the lighting and like all our. Uh, Who decides on that then? The choreographer or the light? The choreographer. I mean, the choreographer turns to the choreographer and director may turn to the designer for how would you do this and suggestions. But we're basically trying to uh, amplify on their ideas. Uh, we are trying to make more expressive what they are doing through dance, but by adding light to make each moment mean more, have more import. Uh, you can speak to that about, because you've had so much experience with all the choreographers. Well, it, it was interesting also, the idea of technology changing. I had a, I had a wonderful opportunity to relight the Graham repertory in 1982. And I had grown up, uh, when I was just beginning as a college student, had met Gene Rosenthal and the Graham Company had came through and gods and goddesses. They, you know, and, and, and Gene was, was such an astounding and important designer. And, and what she did when she uh, would relight at the dance festival a piece that had been created in 1946, she would take out the cue sheets that were dated 1946, and she would be reproducing moment by moment the lighting that she originally did, which in that case was one six-inch Fresnel in the wing and one pipe end up there, and one, and it was all designed for one electrician to run on a manual board, and so the cues were structured this much, and then that much, and then that much. And in 1982, I said, well, Jean hasn't been gone that long, and in her position, she would be coming here to city center off of a thousand lamp musical, and she would, could not, she would not, because our eyes demand something different. I saw that lighting recreated by someone purportedly to be doing Gene's work in the mid-70s, it was too dark. And yet here are people saying, Gene Rosenthal did such beautiful work. And you look at it, you say, 
it's too dark. It's like the sound designers that are pr forever turning it up. I think we, we also, our expectations of how much work we have to do, physically I'm talking about, how much our eyes have to interpret what they're seeing, has gotten, is, is different now. And, I mean, if you go to Drottningholm in Sweden and see a one-candle power lit space, you think that's very dim. So, so the sheer expectation of what you're going to see has changed. And for, for uh, Graham, what I did was to take those essential concepts of angle and where she had one lamp, I would do three, but organized across the space so that I could then control the space in a more elaborate way than she could, but kept the same colors and, and uh, kept the same visual ideas, if I could. In the first scene of Passion, uh, you're lighting two nude singers who are fairly motion, uh, motionless. They're not dancing, and they get up and move around just a little bit. How many light cues? The lights gradually get brighter during that scene, but how many separate cues? They're probably... Uh, before they open the drapes, before they let oh, the sunlight. Oh, the drapes get opened on Q5. The drapes get open on Q5. There are only seven, seven in that scene. There isn't a lot, but it, but it starts, the first cue is, is, I think, probably two minutes long, just very, very slowly ticking along. That's what I wondered. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Can I ask Anne, is there anything as a costume designer you would want a lighting designer to do? I mean, what would you like from a lighting designer? I would like the lighting designer to be there understanding and thinking in the painting terms that I think occupy my brain about how things are painted. Now that may have a lot to do with my own work and the fact that I tend to be very painterly in relationship to my clothing. But um, uh, really, uh, I think early on one of the lighting designers that I worked with who is very missed by us now is Craig Miller and Craig taught me a great deal as I was really beginning to do lots of very painterly clothing about how he used shadow and um, and to me those are the greatest collaborations are, are when a, a, a lighting designer can kind of uh, capture the poetic nature of what how I think light goes on on a person. I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I have to do it. We're going to continue this, I'm sure, afterwards. But this has been an American Theatre Week seminar on working in the theater, and this has been on theater design. This seminar has been on the costume, the set, the lighting, and the prop designer. All the people that make theater come alive to you. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and it is one more of the American Theater Wing's seminars on working in the theater. Thank you for being here. <laughs>